This is The Guardian. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten! Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Gehe einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung. One Tuesday in late November 2023, a plane took off from London and landed in New York. Nothing unusual there, except this plane was different. It was the first to make the journey using 100% so-called sustainable aviation fuel, or SAF. UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was quick to herald the flight as the first step towards the government's target of aviation becoming net zero by 2050. Not only will SAF be key in decarbonising aviation, but it could create a UK industry with an annual turnover of almost two and a half billion pounds, which could support over 5,000 UK jobs. Solutions are badly needed. Aviation is responsible for between 2.5 to 7% of global CO2 emissions. But is SAF really the answer? What else is in the pipeline? And are these technologies just a distraction from a simpler solution? That frequent flyers just need to fly less? From The Guardian, I'm Madeleine Finlay and this is Science Weekly. Dr Guy Grattan, you're an Associate Professor of Aviation and the Environment at Cranfield University. So you've explored all the different ways that aviation could reduce its contribution to the climate crisis. And at the end of last year, Virgin Atlantic, with support from the UK government, completed its first transatlantic flight using 100% so-called sustainable aviation fuel or SAF. Now, look, Perhaps it's unfair of me, but I was rather dubious when I saw the word sustainable in front of the words aviation fuel. So perhaps you can clarify this for me. This flight wasn't 100% sustainable, was it? It depends on how you measure it. But yes, that flight was not by any reasonable measure 100% sustainable. What it was, was flown on 100% biofuel. The majority of those fuels were made in North America from agricultural byproduct. In reality, the life cycle carbon emissions were probably about 40% of what we would normally get with fossil fuels. Now, that is a big improvement and it's definitely worth pursuing. But what we know is that there really is not the capacity to make enough to even run half, let us say, of the world's air transport on these biofuels. In fact, early this year, the Royal Society produced a report and we evaluated if Britain was to grow all of its own jet fuel, how much land would we need? And it came out as between half and two thirds of all of the agricultural land in Britain to make enough fuel for all of the jet flights leaving the UK. 
So at the moment, we're using agricultural waste products to produce these biofuels. But as you described, if we wanted to scale it up to where it needs to be, we'd have to use land in a way that is completely unsustainable. So I'm keen now to dig into some of the other alternative fuels that are being developed. Let's start with hydrogen. How does this work? So hydrogen has a lot of potential. I think most of the smart scientists think this probably will be the future. Pretty simplistically, you take water, break apart the H2O molecules into hydrogen and oxygen, use the hydrogen, dump the oxygen into the atmosphere where it will do no harm at all. About 5% of the world's hydrogen production at the moment is what we call uh, green hydrogen produced with no use of fossil fuels and no carbon emissions. The other 95% is mostly either grey hydrogen, which is to say superheat natural gas with steam and creates CO2 and hydrogen and the CO2 gets released into the atmosphere, or blue hydrogen, which does the same but captures the CO2 and locks it underground somewhere where it can't do any harm. That's the fuel. So we know how to do it. It just needs the money and the industrial will behind it. The aircraft, there's a number of research projects around the world. Probably the most exciting is actually in Britain. It is a company called Zeroavia based at Kemble in Gloucestershire. And they're flying their second prototype hydrogen aircraft at the moment. And that's certainly showing potential for smaller airliners to be able to run on hydrogen. Okay, so that has the hitch that you're needing to design new aircrafts to run on the hydrogen. And actually, this leads us to electrofuels or e-fuels, which are a kind of direct replacement to the fuels we have now, but they're just produced in a new way. So tell me about those. What you do is you create machines that pull carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which has been done at a laboratory scale. We know it can be done. And then you take that CO2, you put it through industrial processes and you create a synthetic jet fuel. And if you scrub a excess of CO2 and put, let's say, 30% of what you scrub locked away underground, what we call sequestering, then you could genuinely make this fuel totally zero carbon because the inevitable carbon footprint of producing it, even with nuclear power, you can compensate by the CO2 you've scrubbed from the atmosphere. And in fact, you could even make it negative carbon by scrubbing a big excess. Um, the current cost is around 10 times the normal cost of jet fuel. Realistically, that would probably increase the price of an air ticket right now by about eight times. However, by the time you've got a lot better at it, you've scaled it all up, that I'm sure could come down, although it's never going to be as cheap as fossil fuels. The airlines and the airliner manufacturers love this idea because essentially it could be burned in the airplanes that we are using right now. So they don't end up with tens of billions of pounds worth of investment to do in developing new and more efficient airplanes. 
but it would require a lot of R&D and a lot of creation of infrastructure to do it. But on paper, this might be the best solution. And moving away from fuels, we can get on to electric planes. And you're also a test pilot and one of the few people actually in the world who's flown one of these. So tell me about that. What is it like to fly an electric plane? Yes, I'm I'm lucky enough to be one of the few test pilots who's been flying electric aircraft. The aeroplanes I've flown are small, they're light, uh, they've got one or two seats, so they're most definitely not capable of carrying lots of passengers a long way. And we are fundamentally hampered by the fact that the current battery technologies are very heavy. So if you compare the energy storage of the best lithium batteries that we've got now, and you compare that to a fuel tank full of kerosene, the kerosene is about a 50th of the weight to store the same amount of energy. So how do you see all these alternatives being implemented in the future? You know, are we going to have a mix of all of them? Or do you think that there's a particular front runner? We're probably going to see battery electric aeroplanes used for training, for sport, perhaps a few specialist military or tourist type applications. When we go up to the smaller commuter city pair type aeroplanes, that I think we might be going over to a mixture of either hydrogen or a battery liquid fuel hybrid. Then I think for the long haul, e-fuel looks likely because it's chemically very similar to kerosene and therefore it's got the energy density that you need if you're, say, going to fly from London to Los Angeles. In the long term, I wouldn't be surprised to see a lot of that replaced by hydrogen as we create the infrastructure and as we learn how to build hydrogen aeroplanes. But Guy, what I would say is that the world doesn't have long to reduce its emissions to avoid the very worst climate impacts. And yet aviation is an industry that's growing, you know, it's going in the wrong direction on this. And so what needs to be done in the short term? What measures do you think we should be doing now? I think that in the short term, we probably need to live with aviation as it is. But aviation needs to be plundering its profits to pay for two things. Firstly, paying for other industries that are easier to decarbonize to do so. And secondly, to develop the medium to long term technologies that aviation really needs. But we are in a world where there aren't any easy fixes, where aviation as such a vital industry is also so long term problematic. It is not in the short term, one of the big polluters, depending on how you measure it, it's generating between two and a half and seven and a half percent of the world's carbon emissions. What we've got to do is the very heavy work of making sure it never becomes a major polluter. Well, that's an interesting point that I want to pick up on because it is only around 3% of the world's population who take regular flights and only 1% who contribute around half of that 2 to 7% of the global carbon emissions that you mentioned. So 
This is a tiny number of people having a huge impact, taking a lot of flights, an increasing number of flights. And so some people argue fairly that maybe we just need to fly less. What do you make of that? I'm afraid I do think that's an unrealistic viewpoint. A lot of the people who are not flying are very likely working in industries that are using air transport all the time to deliver goods, to bring people to tourist destinations. So I am very much of the opinion that the massive urgency is to develop the technologies and reduce aviation's carbon impact. However, the things that have been done in places like France, for example, where they're going over to a requirement that below a certain journey time, it is not permitted to run scheduled flights. People have to find other ways of doing it. Yes, honestly, this is a very sensible thing to do. And not just because of the carbon emissions, but because of the improvements this will give you in the safety and the ability to manage and the air transport system as well. And actually, there is something that we haven't discussed yet that has a major impact on global warming, which is contrails. So that's the white stripes of cloud that you see planes leave behind as they fly. Why are these so bad? So contrails are created when the sooty particles from the burning of fuel in the jet engine act as the nuclei for the creation of ice crystals. And what we end up with is man-made cloud. And if it persists, we call it contrail cirrus because it's very similar to cirrus cloud, which of course does happen naturally. And Contrail cirrus are very reflective. So as the Earth transmits long wave infrared radiation out into space, they reflect it back into the Earth. So think in terms of a winter's day where a cloudy day is invariably warmer than a cloudless day. And that's what they're doing. Um, this does actually look solvable and it looks solvable quite quickly probably around 5% of all flights are creating the contrails that we're worried about. And that's because they are flying through, if I can use a bit of jargon, air which is super saturated with respect to ice. Now, we are close to having weather forecasting tools that can tell you where and when those areas of supersaturation are. And if we can stop producing those today, by the middle of next week, we have shaved 5% off mankind's contribution to global warming. And that's an enormous impact. So, Guy, you've described so many different possibilities to reduce the planetary impact of aviation. But I wonder... This idea of guilt-free flying, do you think such a thing would ever be possible? Yes, I think that give us nuclear-created e-fuels with a proportion of the CO2 that they scrub out of the atmosphere being locked underground, and that flying will fundamentally be carbon neutral. If we do something similar with hydrogen, 
use some of that excess energy also to sequester CO2 underground. And again, that could be carbon neutral, but it's going to need intervention by government and people to insist on these changes, at which point, of course, it it becomes, I won't go so far as to say it's the moral duty to go on holiday, but certainly you can do it without guilt. Guy, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much. A real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks again to Dr Guy Grattan. And that's it for today. The producers were me, Madeline Finley and Josh and Chana. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then. Hello there, Jonathan Friedland here, host of The Guardian's Politics Weekly America podcast. I'm heading to New Hampshire, where I'll be hosting three special editions of the podcast covering the primary election that's happening there. Starting this Friday, the 19th of January, I'll be driving around the Granite State, queuing up for campaign rallies, joining residents at town hall meetings, speaking to voters and analysing those all-important results on election night on the 23rd. Will Donald Trump emerge victorious as expected? Or can Nikki Haley or even Ron DeSantis bring about the first shock political upset of 2024? Listen to Politics Weekly America from this Friday, 19th of January, wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Guardian. Mit Asana können Sie unternehmensweit für mehr Klarheit sorgen und bessere Ergebnisse erzielen, indem Sie Arbeitsvorgänge und Workflows mit Unternehmenszielen verknüpfen. Asana, a smarter way to work. Kostenlos bei asana.com testen. Wünschst du dir, dass dein Lieblingsnachrichtenpodcast nicht mehr durch Werbung unterbrochen wird? Gute Neuigkeiten. Werbefreies Hören bei Amazon Music ist in deiner Prime-Mitgliedschaft enthalten. Geh einfach zu amazon.de slash Nachrichtenpodcasts, um immer auf dem neuesten Stand zu bleiben. Genieße als Prime-Mitglied tausende Acast-Podcasts ohne Werbung. Einige Podcasts enthalten möglicherweise Werbung.